You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Dale said, we're uh, starting a new message series. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at uh, the different religions in the world and, and what they teach and what the differences are between what they teach and what the Christian faith teaches. But before we get into the individual religions we're going to be looking at and what they uh, have to say, I want to start uh, this series by addressing probably the top concern, at least in this culture, that people have regarding just the category of religion in general. And that top concern is the danger that religion represents. Uh, Ann Gaylor, who is from the Freedom From Religion Foundation, says it very shortly and simply this way. She says, wars are initiated because of religion. Now, it's intellectually dishonest to gather all of the data about the harm that religion has caused in this world and not counter it or consider and ignore all of the good that has been done in the name of God. But that aside, she really does have a point. Let me read a prayer to you. We'll put it on the screen behind me. Here's the prayer. O God, who answers prayers and answers those who ask you, I'm asking you for your help. I'm asking you for your forgiveness. I'm asking you to lighten my way. I'm asking you to lift the burden I feel. God, I trust in you. God, I lay myself in your hands. Now, that's a really good prayer. In fact, that's a prayer that I could pray. So who wrote this prayer? The author of this prayer, his name is Muhammad Atta. You may recognize he's the leader of the 9-11 attacks. He piloted American Airlines Flight 11 into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Let me counter that with a, a second statement. Here, we'll put this on the screen too. This is another statement. This is where the words from Scripture come to mind. There is no greater love than if someone gives his soul for his friends. Who said that? That was Vladimir Putin. He said that just a little over a year ago on March 18th. Putin is a Russian Orthodox Christian, and he's actually using a statement of Jesus from the Gospel of John to justify his war against Ukraine. Not just justify it, but call his people to shed their blood, to give their lives for this war. So you have a professing Muslim and a professing Christian using their religions to justify the killing of innocent people. And that's just two of the more recent examples of this kind of thing. So clearly, religion can be very dangerous in the wrong hands. So what's the answer to the danger that is represented by the religions of this world? Well, the modern answer is to just water down belief in God altogether for the sake of peace. The idea is that it's just safer if we let individuals pursue happiness in whatever way they want and just kind of ignore the God question altogether. Because if you take belief seriously, the thought is, you run the risk of getting way too extreme and kind of entering into wacko land. Now, it's obvious that Muhammad Atta was wrong. It's obvious that Vladimir Putin is wrong. Why? Is it because they claim to be believers? No, I don't know that they are, but they claim to be believers. Or is it because of what they believe that is wrong? In other words, is the danger represented in religion, is the the danger belief itself, or is the danger in believing the wrong thing? Is the lesson of religious conflict to ignore the whole God area, or is the lesson to make sure that you get it right? 
Now, if the only risk coming from religion was conflict, then I would say it's probably not worth the risk. But it turns out there's more than one danger in this topic. We know all about the danger of, of conflict. We know all about the danger of war. But there's, there's two dangers. There's not only the danger of conflict, there is a tremendous danger represented in ignoring God altogether. There's tremendous danger in that. So we're going to look at both of these dangers this morning and how to address that. And then next week, we're going to start looking at these individual religions. Danger number one is getting the truth wrong. This is the ignoring God part. This is the danger that, at least in our culture, in modern cultures, is a danger that is completely ignored or downplayed altogether. The danger of getting the truth wrong. Now, when is it important to be right about the truth? When is it important? Well, it depends on how dangerous the decision is, how big the decision, how dangerous it is to get it wrong. And there are many decisions we make, and they come in at different levels of consequence or danger or risk. Some decisions are, are really small, and it, it's okay if you get it wrong. For me, I am, and everyone who's close to me knows this, I am the worst menu decider that has ever, at least I've, I've not encountered an equal. And what I mean by that is, is pick the restaurant, put a menu in front of me, and in under a minute, I can select the absolute worst thing on the menu. Not because I'm trying to do this. It's it really, it's just a gift. I don't know how I do it, but I'm able to identify the worst thing on the menu. And it's become a point of humor between my wife and I because it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's disappointing. We wasted money, and I didn't like it again. But it's gotten to be the point where my wife, very kindly, will lean next to me and say, would you like me to pick something for you? <laughs> because she knows I'm just going to pick the worst thing. So that's a decision that... It's not that big of a deal, and so it's, it's not dangerous to get that decision wrong. But what if I was a, a bad financial decider? Or what if I was a bad wife decider? Well, that's a bigger deal. Marrying the wrong person or investing in a scam, that comes with much larger consequences. So decisions fall into the categories of risk. Let me give you a few categories. These are not every category, but just to kind of give you a sense of what I'm talking about. There are the personal taste decisions, like me with a menu, or you with, you know, Baskin-Robbins. I mean, it, it really doesn't matter. You may be disappointed with your decision, but the consequences are not that big because there's really no right and wrong when it comes to personal taste. But then there are the high-stakes decisions. And what I mean by high-stakes is if you get these wrong, the consequences are immediate and severe. For example, driving. You get driving wrong on the way home, you may not be here next Sunday. You drive on the wrong side of the road, that's not just a mistake. That's not a menu decision. That's a life and death decision. And then there are the long-range decisions. These are the ones that uh, you don't feel the consequences of getting it wrong immediately, but they, they haunt you and they affect you long-range, like who you marry and how you parent and how you do handle your finances. You make a bad decision, and you're not going to feel that as quickly as a bad driving decision, but you will feel that over time, and it'll really affect your life. And then there are other decisions we're going to look at in this series, and they, those are the God decisions. In other words, who is God? Is there a God? Is God real? And if so, what's, what's true about him? And what does he say about me? And, and what does he require of me? 
Now, most people in our culture put the God decisions back on the bottom level of the, or the, top, the lowest level of the personal decisions. They think it really doesn't matter. It's just a personal taste. Just pick one on the menu. It really doesn't matter. Because the thought for most people is, there's no right or wrong. These aren't real. Now, the religions themselves, as you will see, they disagree on all kinds of things. But every religion agrees on two important topics. The first is they all agree that what they teach describes what is wrong with this world. Every religion has this in common. Every religion is an answer, a purported answer to what's wrong with us and by extension what's wrong with this world. And the second thing that every religion teaches is they believe that what they teach tells us about what happens to us after we die. Those are two common categories that religions all deal with. And you can't get really any bigger than those two categories. What's wrong with you and by extension this world? The answer to that is not just a menu decision. That's a more pain or less pain decision. And the answer to what really happens after this life is not just a, oh, well, I'll flip a coin and hope I get it right. No, that's a, an eternal kind of decision. So it's not like choosing from a menu. God decisions are more like picking a cancer doctor to heal you from something that is taking away your life. That's a big decision. You want to get that one right. And it's more like booking a flight to the final and most important destination of your life. You don't want to just show up at the airport and say, I'll take whatever's next. You want to make that decision right. So it's important to be right in, in at least two areas, and these affect these two categories when it comes to the nature of who God is. It's important to be right, first of all, when we choose, when we're choosing a real person. You know, if you're choosing a friend, you're choosing a, a spouse, obviously it's important to be right. But when you're choosing God, when the person that you're selecting is God, that is critical because you're not just choosing a God idea, you're choosing an answer to the big problem of you and, by extension, this world. Isaiah 42, 8, in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, we read this. God says, I am the Lord. And it's in capitalized because it's a particular Hebrew name, and I'll mention it in just a moment. But he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved <coughs> idols. So in the Hebrew language, which is what the, New Test or the Old Testament rather was written in, uh, Lord here is Yahweh. You may have heard this name of God. It's the Hebrew word for, for the Lord, Yahweh. Now why does God declare this is my name? It's because he wants to make sure his identity is clear because he is real. And right now, these people are giving praise to other religious ideas in ancient ancient times, it was mostly idols. And God is saying, I, I want you to get my name right because my name is attached to me, and you need to get this right. Now, some of you put a name tag on today like, like I did. Now, I, I've been looking around, but I haven't seen anyone whose name tag says life force or humanoid. I know sometimes people like to you know, joke with us, but I haven't seen that one. Maybe I will next week now, but life force or humanoid, you don't say that on your name tag because that, that's too general. A real person is specific, and our names point to a real person. 
Now, I have a very unique name, and therefore, when someone hollers Bevan, I don't see four or five heads turning. It's just me. It's a very unique name. And it's attached to me, the specific person. So one of the, you can say many things about me. One of the descriptions about me physically is I'm six feet tall. So if someone describes me as being, oh, Bevan, I know Bevan, he's six feet tall. And someone else says, oh, yeah, I know Bevan, he's, no, no, he, he's five feet tall. And someone else says, no, no, the Bevan I know, he's seven feet tall. What's going on here? Well, you can't say that, oh, yeah, that you're right. All of you are right. All of those descriptions are right. Either I'm one of those or I'm none of those. None of those are accurate. But I, if I'm real, I fit a specific description and I can't be all of those. And I'm saying this because here in America, two-thirds of Americans believe that basically all religions are the same. And what that means is either they haven't read the scriptures of these different religions because if they read them, they would see the differences. Or they think that God is just kind of a made-up idea, that he's not real, and therefore any description will fit. You know, if you read the Quran for Islam and the Bhagavad Gita for Buddhism and the Bible for the Christian faith, they describe very vastly different God ideas, not just kind of slightly angled-off ideas, very different God ideas. The ideas are competing, and they're con contradictory. So to accept one means you, by decision, are rejecting the others. Because if God is real, he can't be all of them. If I'm real, you can't give contradictory descriptions of me and say they're all true. And that's because my name does not identify some ethereal idea of the concept of bevanness. It's, it's describing me, a real person. And if you want to get to know me, you first have to get my name right. And that's the reason we offer name tags here at Seabreeze. It's because a name is really the beginning of a relationship. Real people are specific. And it's the same with God. The God of the Bible is real and names himself. So as we look at these differences, we're not just talking about God ideas. We're talking about names that describe what this religion claims to be the real God. And that means we have a decision in front of us. A decision that isn't just pick one. A decision is pick the answer to what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with you. The stakes are very high. Secondly, it's important to be right when you're going to a real destination. Before Jesus left this earth, he said this to his disciples in John 14, 4 through 5. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus is describing his return to heaven, and he's saying, uh, you guys can follow me because you know the way. And Thomas is like, I didn't get that. And if you said it, I didn't write it down, and now that I know what you're talking about, I want to get this. These are not directions you want to lose. I want to get this right. One of the topics common to all religions, as I've said, is the idea of directions and instructions regarding the afterlife, the next life. And one of the ideas, again, that's popular in our culture is, is this, you've probably heard this, all roads lead to God. 
Maybe you've seen the image of a mountain and there's all these trails that, you know, eventually they may head different directions, but they all head up to the same point. Is that true? Well, let me ask you this. Do all roads lead to Phoenix? No, why not? Because Phoenix is a real place. And if you're just driving around, any road will do. But if you really intend to arrive at a real place, a real destination, the route you take, the road you take, is essential to whether that's going to happen or not. So if heaven is a real destination, then you have to look at the maps and make your own decision about what road you're going to travel on. The decision you make about Jesus, about religion, is a critical one. It determines where you're going to go, whether you'll arrive. Is that because God is mean and doesn't just let people go wherever they want? No, it's because God is real and because heaven is a real place. You know, if someone wants to go to Phoenix, but they just wander around, they can't blame anyone when they end up in Tijuana. <laughs> because they, they didn't take their decisions seriously. They didn't read the map. So when our culture says all roads lead to God, what they're saying is God isn't real, heaven isn't real, and therefore your decision is a menu decision. It's not a real decision. And if that's your conclusion, that's your right to make that conclusion, but that's a big risk. So that's danger number one. This is the danger that we tend not to think about. If you jettison the God questions... You're jettisoning the big questions of life. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with this world? What happens after I die? Those are not small questions. They don't get any bigger than that. But now the, the second danger, the one that we hear most talk about, and that is the danger of treating people wrong. When it comes to the truth, the big challenge is this. Not everybody agrees on what the truth is. Now, how do we handle these disagreements when we discover that someone doesn't agree with us? How do we handle that? Oh, oh well, no big deal. Sometimes, but not usually all the time. We tend to fight over what we think is right. In fact, this is what's behind every single argument that my wife and I have had. Not about God, but about something that we are convinced is right. I'm convinced I'm right. She's convinced she's right. And we argue. Why? Why does it upset us as humans when someone is getting it wrong, according to us? Why can't we just laugh about our truth disagreements? It's because we're both convinced that the truth really matters. And we're right. It really does matter, especially if the stakes are high. We do know naturally, instinctually, that getting it wrong is dangerous, whether it's you know, physically wrong and you, you fall off a cliff, or whether it's morally wrong and you mess up your life. We know that these things really matter. But people are so convinced about what they think is right that they're actually willing to treat people wrong because they disagree. This is what's true of the arguments with my wife and I. I'm so convinced that I'm right that I'm, I'm willing to say harsh things to the woman that I love, all in the name of truth. This is kind of the way we are. That's why there's so much anger and conflict in this world. And, of course, it's, it's only getting worse. Now, Jesus taught us and then modeled 
a different way to handle these truth disagreements. And this is very important when it comes to the critical truth about who God is. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be disagreements probably in this room. Of course there's going to be. And in your neighborhood, in your family, there's going to be disagreements. And you're going to have to figure out, how am I going to handle these disagreements? Because you don't want to treat people wrong over these. And Jesus is the one who taught us that you don't want to treat people wrong over these disagreements. So Jesus taught on this, and then the best way he taught was by example at the moment when he was arrested. Jesus was arrested, and he was crucified because of a religious disagreement. He claimed to be God in flesh. And so, of course, it was only a matter of time before this kind of truth claim was going to lead to conflict with those who had very different ideas about God. So what do you do when someone disagrees at the God level? Historically, that's where things get violent. It's at this point where things get, wars are started and, and fights, like physical fights happen. And this is where it was heading with Jesus. The disagreement escalated to the point where the Roman soldiers were sent to arrest Jesus. And here's what we read in Matthew 26, 50 through 53. Then the men stepped forward. These are the Roman soldiers. They stepped forward. They seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. This is typical. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. This is not typical. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, I've got all the power I need. That's not the issue here. He was not interested in advancing the truth by force. Why? It's because Jesus had come to build a kingdom unlike any other kingdom that this world has ever seen. It was a kingdom not of political power or arrived at through military might. Earlier, he had described this kingdom this way in Luke 17, 20 through 21. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. What he's saying is the kingdom of God is is not primarily a place. It starts as the rule of God in the hearts of people. In other words, it's a personal decision that each person must freely make. And the thing about a human heart, the way God created it, is it cannot be conquered by force. A body can be moved by force. A heart cannot be moved by force. A heart must be freely given. Every human heart has been created by God to be free. And what that means is we have the right to make our own decisions about what is true, even if that choice is wrong. In other words, and here's the amazing thing, God has given us the right to be wrong. And if God has given us this right and everyone we know that right, then who are we not to extend that right to them? Everyone has the right to be wrong. Now, there's going to be pain with that, but we can't force anyone. We can't force ourselves. So how are we then supposed to address the wrong ideas encountered by us, the wrong God ideas specifically? One of the most helpful short descriptions of, of a practical way that 
the New Testament tells us to respond in these moments is found in Ephesians 4.15. It says, instead, you know, instead of the fights that can escalate, instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Jesus Christ is the head. He's the leader. If you're following Jesus Christ, he's the boss. And if you want to follow him and you encounter someone that does not believe the truth like you do, here's what you do. You speak the truth in love. Literally, in the Greek language, which the New Testament is written, it means you speak truth in the atmosphere of love. What that means is the first thing people encounter is a genuine love from you. Not an irritation, not a disrespect, not a shaking of the head, but a genuine concern and willingness to sacrifice and help. Then, in that atmosphere, truth at appropriate times and appropriate ways can be spoken. And then more love is experienced. This approach honors the value of the person and their right to decide. As I said, it was God who gave us the right to be wrong. And in doing so, God established a very important tension that must be held in place. And I want to put this graphically on the screen behind you so that you can see what I'm talking about here. First is the importance of being right, and secondly is the importance of having rights. These are designed, they're linked together, they're designed to be held in tension, in balance. Now, being right provides us with protection. That's the whole idea of the importance of the truth. We're talking about a high-stakes decision. We're talking about a long-range decision. We're talking about a God decision. If we get it right, all things considered, our life is going to be better. It's going to be more protected. There's going to be more safety in getting it right. That's what being right provides. It provides us with protection. Having right on the other side provides us with freedom. This is the right to be wrong, the right to disagree. That provides us with freedom. So as I said, these are designed to be held together in equal tension. They're equally important. It's important to get it right. It's important to give people the right to be wrong, having rights. Now, this connection operates in such a way that it's kind of like a seesaw, and that's the fulcrum there. In other words, when one goes up, the other one automatically goes down. Let me explain it this way. If being right rises and dominates, what happens in that particular culture is those who are in power, they force everyone to submit to what they think is right. So what happens to freedom in those environments? It goes down. Whether they're right or wrong, freedom goes down as having rights is lowered. And that culture becomes a dangerous and a harsh place for free thinking and for living in general. A few modern examples of this right now would be Iran or North Korea or even China. They're generally run by autocrats who decide, or at least a small group of people, who decide what is right and then enforce that on everyone else. The idea of having rights is lowered and freedom is lowered. In fact, the coronation coming up of King Charles next month, um, there's an interesting phrase that for the first time in the thousand years of the British monarchy that's not going to be included, for the first time ever, a monarch of the British crown will not be referred to as a defender of the faith. Because in England, the king or the queen, whoever's 
on the throne is the leader of the Church of England. That's historically the case. And so they're called the defender of the faith. But that points to a pretty ugly history in the Christian faith in the European continent where the throne, the power, the armies were enforcing Christianity and people really didn't have a choice. And that was wrong. So that's why King Charles isn't going to be referred to as the defender of the faith. And that's, I think, actually a good thing. And so the history of the world has been probably fairly said where being right has dominated and having rights has, has changed. But things are now shifting. And if you, you study human history, what you realize is we as humans, we don't so much learn from our lessons and get to a balanced understanding of the truth. We react to our lessons and we slide the pendulum the other direction. So that's kind of what's happening now in modern cultures like ours. So if having rights, on the other hand, dominates, then what happens is the culture begins to lose its moral breaks. No one can say you're wrong. Any concern about what is right and what is wrong is replaced with an increasing number of rights until pretty much everyone has a legal claim to whatever they want to do as the number of rights are added. And that's where we're at now. It's almost monthly, new rights are being described. And what happens then is the culture then loses its ability to tell anyone that they're wrong because having rights has been replaced by, or rather having rights has replaced being right. So it's a problem on the other side. And then protection is lost. In other words, life gets harder over time in the individual lives in that culture. And this is the direction of our culture. Because when the truth is lowered, we don't just get more answers wrong on some test somewhere. We get more answers wrong in life, which brings real suffering. So what we believe really matters. What we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come really is important. So in the coming Sundays, we're going to be looking at the real differences between the Christian faith and the other major world religions. First, starting next week, I'm going to talk about the Eastern religions. Then we'll talk about Judaism, then Islam, and then the differences between Protestant and Catholic. I think this will be interesting. Uh, a lot of us here at Seabreeze have a Catholic background. And we don't really understand. We kind of have some senses, but I think it'd be really helpful to understand what the differences are. So we're not going to be bashing anyone, but we're just going to be trying to describe here's the real differences and how that happened in history. So again, these are not items on some menu where it's like, yeah, if you get it wrong, no big deal. These are the big ideas about what is wrong with us and our world and about what happens to us after we die. When I was 19, uh, I spent the summer in the Philippines. And it was there that I was introduced to some really neat people. But I was introduced more than that to the very idea of how powerful culture is in shaping what we believe about God. I met some people my age who were also in college who were convinced that they would die if they took this medallion off of their neck. They showered with it, they slept with it, they, because if they took it off, they believed they would die. They also believed that their ancestors influenced the future, so they would pray to their ancestors. And as I got to know them and discovered this, it really shook me in my faith. Doubts began to flood my mind. 
Not because I thought, really, is there a medallion that's going to save my life? I didn't think that made any sense at all. But it was because they thought it made sense, and the only reason they thought that made sense is because they had grown up in a place and in a tribe and in a part of the world where their parents had taught them that. And here's what that did to me is I began to realize, okay, so I grew up in a Christian nation, and I grew up in a Christian home. Is that the only reason I'm a Christian? If I had grown up in a Middle Eastern home, would I be Muslim? If I'd grown up in India, would I be Hindu? And I began to realize if that's all that I'm standing on is the cultural heritage of my family, that's not enough to build a life on. And so I had all kinds of doubts. And I decided, all right, I got to figure this out for myself. And that summer, I, I would say, was the best and scariest thing that's ever happened to me. I discovered over the next two years, that the truth isn't fragile. That it, it's, it's able to handle the weight of my doubt. And so to this day, whenever I'm reading something in the Bible and I don't understand it, I'll literally say, that makes no sense at all. i got to figure this out. If it's true, it can handle questions. It can handle doubt. Any truth that's too frail for questions is not real. And then I also learned that questions actually don't offend God. In fact, it's the reverse. When I'm asking these kinds of questions, they let God know, those questions let God know that I'm taking him seriously. And that's a good thing. I also learned that the door to faith is doubt. I used to think that the door to faith was just believing, whatever that meant. But I discovered over the course of those two years that actually doubt on the other side, you know, doubt left to itself, that's dangerous. But doubt pursued, that leads to answers. That leads to faith. So the point of this series is to ask the question, what's the difference? Now, the conclusion of my study is obvious because of what I decided to do. But my conclusion isn't going to change you. You may have already decided to become a Christian, but you're relying more on that feeling kind of faith, which, if it's tested, it's not going to stand. Maybe you need to anchor your, your faith more deeply, or maybe you really are, aren't, aren't sure, and you need to look into these matters. I think this will be really helpful for you wherever you're at. God gave you a mind, gave me a mind, and he gave us freedom and he intends for us to use them seriously and apply them to the big questions of life. Not the this week questions, not the next month questions, but the forever questions. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. Hope you can join us. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for giving us freedom. And in doing so, we have a, a real opportunity to love to love each other because we're free and, and to love you and to know you. God, I pray for everyone in this room. You know exactly where they're at, what questions they have, what doubts they have, what conclusions they've arrived to. And God, I pray that through these coming weeks as we address these different questions, God, that you would help them. You would help them see who you are and come to conclusions freely from an open heart. 
Speak to us, we we pray, and we ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.